Amen. Well, let me invite you to take a copy of God's Word and turn to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter number 1, as we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark. And we come now to uh, verse 14, and we'll read down through verse number 20 this morning. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. We hear these words. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. As I said last week, it is important as we read through the gospel of Mark that we keep in mind the lens through which Mark presents the gospel. He presents the gospel of Jesus Christ through the lens of spiritual warfare. The kingdom of God battling against the kingdom of darkness. Last week in Mark 1, 12 through 13, we saw an invasion as King Jesus and the kingdom of God invaded enemy territory, confronted Satan, was tempted by him for 40 days, and overcame him in the wilderness. The initial battle, if you will, was won in the wilderness through his overcoming temptation, but... The war continues, and from that moment, having won the initial battle, Jesus moves from the private setting of the wilderness to the public stage. He moves out into the public arena where now he is going to do battle with the kingdom of darkness for all to see. He will battle Satan, he will battle the kingdom of darkness, And the kingdom of God will move forward and will advance in this sin-cursed, darkened world. Now, heightened expectations in the first century caused many Jews to anticipate the coming of God's kingdom as an unstoppable, insurmountable event that nothing could withstand. Based on the prophecy of Daniel 2, they saw the kingdom of God, a stone cut without hands that would annihilate and would crush all the other kingdoms of this world. And thus they believed when the kingdom of God arrived that with the kingdom would come the annihilation of all other kingdoms, that it would destroy the other kingdoms of this world that God would set up his earthly kingdom and that sin and darkness would be no more and they would rule and they would reign with him. They expected the kingdom to come 
in an unstoppable way and that it would advance immediately, quickly, and that it would, be, it would advance um, in a manner in which it could not be stopped. But when you come to Mark 1, you see why many Jews were confused in the first century. Because what you find is the kingdom of God advances slowly, not rapidly. The kingdom of God advances almost at a crawl, a snail's pace, rather than arriving abruptly and just immediately overtaking all things. In fact, the kingdom of God advances in this world more in the manner of trench warfare than in the manner of a blitzkrieg or in the manner of shock and awe. And so what we find here in, 1 or in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 20, is we find that in Jesus' first public sermon and in his calling of his first disciples to himself, we see a glimpse of how the kingdom of God advances in this world. And the kingdom of God, 2,000 years later, still advances in the same way today as it advanced then. So how does it advance? Well, first we see that the kingdom of God advances through proclamation. In verses 14 and 15, this is Jesus' first sermon. But verse 14 gives us the context. And the context is this, that John was arrested. John the Baptist was the first preacher we're introduced to in Mark's gospel. He arrives as the forerunner, the one who arrives before Jesus, who prepares the way for Jesus, and the one who sets the stage for the Messiah to enter and to begin his public ministry. Now, Mark doesn't tell us here why John has been arrested. He will get into the details a little bit later in Mark's gospel, but suffice it to say, this is Mark's quick way of telling us this. The forerunner is now out of the picture. And now that the forerunner is out of the picture, the one whom he preached about, the one whom he prophesied about, now comes and he arrives on center stage. And Jesus arrives doing something. He arrives, the Bible says, proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, he arrives in Galilee, verse 14 tells us, and if you outline the book of Mark, what you'll find is that from chapter 1, verse 14, through chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus' ministry is contained in the area of Galilee. And he arrives in Galilee, the Bible says, proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, the word proclaiming is an interesting word. The word proclaiming is the word caruso, and it means to announce as a herald. It means to proclaim publicly. In those days, when kings sent out a message, they had heralds who would receive the message from the king and would go out and they would announce that message verbatim. So here is a description of what Jesus is doing. Jesus is arriving in public, proclaiming, preaching a message. And the message is called the gospel of God. In verse 1, Mark tells us that his gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, appears, he appears preaching the gospel of God. The good news of what God was doing through himself. The good news of what God was doing through Jesus. Now, verse 15 
gets into the bulk of the message, gets into the heart of the message. And so let's just look at the message that Jesus preached. You know, this being the first public message Jesus ever preached caused me this week to to remember the first message I ever preached. Uh, I I tell people all the time, it was, you know, I was long-winded even from the beginning, uh, except uh, when I stood in Elk Creek Church that morning to preach the sermon, it took me about five minutes to to get over my nerves to tell everybody that the Lord had called me to preach. Um, Then I preached on the woman at the well uh, from John 4, and uh, I think I left her at the well whenever I, by the time I got finished with her, and uh, I don't even think I got to the part where Jesus told her he'd give her a drink that would completely satisfy her, so I butchered that. Uh, It was just a, (laughs) it was an honor, but uh, uh, it was rough all at the same time. Well, we have here Jesus' first message, and it should not surprise us, his first message was much better than mine. Note the details or the description of his message. Again, he calls it the gospel of God. He arrives proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God. That is, God is now acting in human history, and he is acting through his son. And it is good news that God so loved the world that he gave his son. He sent his son into this world. And God is acting on behalf of sinful man. But notice the details of the message as well. Verse 15, he begins by saying, the time is fulfilled. Literally, the wait is over. Anticipate no more. The longing that you have in your heart can now be achieved. It can now be satisfied And he says that the time is fulfilled. The word time gives us the idea of something that is spatial, something that takes place, an event in history. And what he's saying is this, what God has promised in the Old Testament, what God had given to his people, the promises that inspired their hope, that the moment in history for those things to be fulfilled has now arrived because then he says, The kingdom of God is at hand. Literally, he's saying the kingdom of God has arrived. The kingdom you long for, the kingdom you hoped for, the kingdom that would overcome all the other kingdoms of this world and destroy Satan, it has arrived. But there's something different about it. When Jesus arrives proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, is Rome overthrown? No. Are Jews released from their oppression? No. Is Satan defeated to where he can no longer tempt and no longer uh, devour people? No. Well, then how can Jesus say that the kingdom of God has arrived? Well, when you read about the kingdom of God, you have to understand a few nuances of the kingdom. There is, in a real sense, a future aspect to the kingdom. In, an, in, in a sense, the kingdom is something that we enter into in the new age, in the new heaven, in the new earth. Thus we pray, thy kingdom come. The fact that we pray thy kingdom come is evidence that it has not yet come in all of its fullness. But there is, in reality, also an aspect of the kingdom that arrived 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ Arrived. It is a present reality. Jesus, the king, arrived and he brought with him all the powers of the age to come. 
You see, in Mark's gospel, when Jesus casts out a devil, it's more than just showing he has power over Satan. He is demonstrating the power of the kingdom of God, that in the kingdom of God, the powers of darkness have no power, and they are cast out. There is no hope for the powers of darkness when he heals a man with a withered hand. He is showing us that in the kingdom, all will be made whole. And so all of Jesus' ministry is showing us what kingdom life is all about. And so in that aspect, the kingdom of God arrived when Jesus Christ was here upon this earth. And men enter that kingdom, not in eternity, but in the present. They enter that kingdom when they trust in Christ and believe in Christ. In fact, Paul put it this way in Colossians, that he has transferred us from or delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and has delivered us into the kingdom of his dear son. You see, if you are a believer, if you are saved, if you've trusted Christ, you are a member of the kingdom of God now already present while you await entrance into the kingdom of God in its full finality in the age to come. And thus, when Jesus arrives preaching the kingdom of God is here, he is saying to them that the kingdom that is going to rule over all is now active and working in this sin-cursed world. The reign of God is working now. Do you remember when Jesus was with some Pharisees in Luke chapter 17? And they asked Jesus the question about when the kingdom of God was coming. What did Jesus say to them? The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. And they won't say, look, here it is. Or look over there, there it is. What does Jesus say next? For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, there are some people who say that the kingdom of God is within us, and that's what Jesus is saying. But understand, Jesus would have never said that to the bunch of self-righteous Pharisees. These are not righteous people he's talking to. Well, then how could he say that the kingdom of God is in your midst? He could say that because the king was in their midst. And he could say the kingdom of God is here because I am here. So the details of his message is this. It is that the time has arrived. The kingdom promised in the Old Testament has now arrived in the New Testament. But it did not arrive with glitz and glamour and pop and circumstance. It arrived through a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. And here is the good news. It is the gospel of God. He is working in history. But his message also has demands. Notice the demands of his message. After he tells us the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, he says, repent and believe the gospel. You see, Jews thought that they automatically enter the kingdom because of their spiritual heritage or their physical heritage, their Abraham's seed. Jesus would say to them in John, God can raise up Abraham's seed from these stones. You can't boast in who your father is and expect to enter the kingdom just because of that. No, we don't enter this kingdom because of who we are, because of who our parents are, because of who our friends are, or because of the job we have or a status that we have obtained in this life. That is not how you enter the kingdom. Well, how do you enter the kingdom? Well, you enter the kingdom by doing 
These two things. One, you enter the kingdom by repentance. You must turn from your sin. That's what he says here in verse 15. Repent. To repent of your sin means to turn away from your sin. Some have defined repentance as a change of heart that leads to a change of behavior. Your ideas, your disposition towards sin changes. Before you love sin, you long for sin. And now you realize that sin is an offense to God. You realize that your sin deserves and demands the punishment from God. And so you turn from that sin. Um, Scripture says that unless you repent, you will perish. There is no salvation apart from repentance. So the kingdom of God as it comes and as it spreads changes people's disposition towards sin. They turn from sin. But you know as well as I do, it's impossible to turn from something without turning to something. And so the positive aspect of entering the kingdom is not only repentance, but faith. You must turn to God. Look what he says. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here's what Jesus is saying. To enter this kingdom... You must repent of your sin, and you must believe the gospel. You must believe the good news of what God is doing through his son. The good news of the gospel is this. You don't have to work for it because you can't. You don't have to earn it because you can't. You don't have to be good enough for it because you can't be. The way you enter the kingdom of God is by repenting of your sin and by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe what God did in this world 2,000 years ago through his son. And I promise you this. If you will repent of your sin, if you will believe the gospel, trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will become a member, not of Lakeville, but of something far greater than Lakeville, of the kingdom of almighty God. So here's the interesting thing. The gospel of the kingdom advances in this sin-cursed world through proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not through weapons of warfare, not by political activism. That's not how the kingdom advances in this world, but by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen, beloved, if we do anything at Lakeville, may this be a place where the gospel of Jesus Christ is faithfully proclaimed and preached no matter what. Let it always be the place where the gospel is faithfully preached because God has ordained that his kingdom advance through the preaching and the proclamation of his word. So how's this kingdom advance? It advances through proclamation. But secondly, we also see that the kingdom advances through people. Now, this is what's interesting. The kingdom of God does not advance by conquering nations with weapons of war. The kingdom of God advances in this world by conquering individuals' hearts with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how the kingdom advances. In fact, it doesn't advance one nation at a time. The kingdom advances one heart at a time, one individual at a time. And so this is where the Jews missed it in the first century. 
They saw again in Daniel 2 that image of the statue and all the other nations and they saw that stone cut without hands that just came down and obliterated the other nations. And then the saints of the Most High possessed the kingdom, Daniel says. They knew nothing about the kingdom slowly advancing little by little by little until it eventually spreads throughout the world. No, Jesus even told a parable about this. You remember this? The kingdom of God is like, a, like leaven that a woman put in a lump of bread. And before long, what happened? That leaven that starts out so small eventually permeates and eventually spreads throughout that entire loaf. Well, they knew nothing about a slow spread of the kingdom of God. But what we have here in this passage, in verse 16 through 20, as Jesus calls four disciples to himself is you have that leaven permeating. You have that leaven spreading. You have the kingdom of God advancing one disciple at a time with a pair of brothers, Peter and Andrew and James and John. And what do their, what does their call to discipleship tell us about how God uses people in his kingdom to advance it? Well, three things. One, it tells us this. It tells us that Jesus graciously enlists sinners in his kingdom. Jesus graciously enlists sinners in his kingdom. In verse 16, the Bible says he's passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And what's he do? Scripture says, and Jesus said to them, look what happens in verse 18. Or verse 19. It says, and going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them. So what do we have here? We have Jesus calling Peter and Andrew and Jesus calling James and John. Now this won't be on your notes, but there's some intriguing observations to be made about the call of God here. Notice, if you would, that this kingdom call, it's unexpected. I mean, they were not expecting it. What are Peter and Andrew doing? They're, they're mending their nets. What are James and John doing? They're, they're mending their nets. They, they've been out working all night, fishing, and they were the most surprised people in the world when Jesus walked by them and said to them, follow me. You know, I was shocked when Christ called me to himself. I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't looking for him. He wasn't lost. I was. But when he came searching and looking and seeking after me, it was unexpected. And much like these men, it changed my world and turned it upside down. And the good news is, here Jesus initiates it. The Bible says he saw them. He saw them before they ever saw him. And he spoke to them. He initiated the call to the kingdom. If you are saved today and you are a child of God, you are a saved child of God because Jesus first initiated the call. Jesus reached out to you. Jesus called you. Jesus spoke to you through his word, through his spirit, and he called you to himself. What does the Bible say? We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. You don't seek the Lord 
You don't reach out to him. You don't find him. He seeks you. And thus, this call, it was unexpected, but it also, it was undeserved. What had Peter and Andrew and James and John done to earn this call from God? Nothing. Nothing. They just show up. Two fishermen. And all of a sudden, Jesus calls them to himself. And where are they from? They're Galileans. Now listen, if you and I were trying to advance a kingdom, we probably would have never chosen a set of brothers from Galilee. Galilee, much like Nazareth, did not have the best of reputations in the area. David Platt, describing the reputation of those in Galilee, said this about Galilee. He said they were deemed lower class, rural, uneducated, commoners, nobodies, not well respected, certainly not among the culturally elite, hardly the most spiritually qualified for the task, exceedingly ignorant, narrow-minded, superstitious, full of Jewish prejudices, misconceptions, and animosities. And you know where Jesus goes first to call his disciples? He goes right there into Galilee to call them. And there's nothing Peter, James, or Peter, or Andrew, or James, or John have done to earn it. And furthermore, there's nothing that they would do after this that would earn it. Maybe somebody reads this and they say, well, you know, Jesus knew that they were going to be pretty good guys. And so he called them based on what he knew they were going to do. They were going to earn it afterwards. Really? You know what Peter does? Peter rebukes the Lord when he talks about going to the cross. <laughs> you know what Peter does? Peter gets mad and cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. You know what Peter does? Peter denies three on three separate occasions that he even knew the Lord. How's that for earning your place in the kingdom? What about Andrew? Well, we know this about Andrew. He was a coward because when they came for Jesus, guess what he did? He took tail and ran with the rest of them. They'll smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. What about James and John? They're pretty good fellows, aren't they? Well, a little bit later, they'll... They'll get a little filled with pride, thinking themselves to be better than what they are. In fact, uh, they're sitting with Jesus at supper one time, and one of them says, hey, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. Actually, they send their mama to do it. They're, you know, they're really robust men. You know, when you send your mama to do your battles for you, they send their mama to Jesus, and she comes to Jesus, and she says, hey, when you come into your kingdom, uh, I just got one request. Can James sit on your right hand and John sit on your left hand? I mean, we're not asking much. I want one of my boys to be the defense, secretary of defense, and I want the other one to be the secretary of state. That's, that's not asking much for the kingdom. What did Jesus say? It's not mine to give. It's not mine to give. Furthermore, James and John have a little bit of a problem with their anger. They leave a place that rejected Jesus, and you know what they wanted to do? Let's just call the judgment of God down upon them. So much so, they are in the nickname, the sons of thunder. Now listen, there's no way these four men would ever earn the call that had been given to them. And in just the same manner, God didn't save us because we would eventually earn it, that we would pay off a debt. He saved us knowing full and well, not just 
we had committed, the sins we commit, and the sins we would commit. He saved us knowing we would never be able to repay him for the salvation he provided for us. Never be able in a million years to earn it. And yet, what's he do? He calls us anyway. This glorious kingdom call, it's undeserved. No one deserves it. If Listen. If you think you deserve the kingdom of God, you will forever find yourself on the outside of it. You will never enter the kingdom. And then this call, it was an unconditional call. When he calls sinners, it's unconditionally. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus walks up to them and he says this, two words, follow me. What a demand for sinners. What a call into his kingdom. Follow me. It is a demand. No fine print. Matter of fact, there's nothing on the contract. It's almost as if Jesus hands them a blank contract and tells them to sign it first and then trust him to fill in the details later. Wherever wherever it is that I lead you, follow me. You know, if I were to ask you to do that with me or someone else would ask you to do that with you, that would be a pretty haughty demand. Be pretty arrogant of us. But let me ask you something. Who is the me in the follow me? Does he have the right? Does he have the credentials to demand that people follow him? Is it arrogant of him? Well, let's just take Mark 1. Let's ask Mark in the first chapter of Mark, who is the me of verse 17? Well, in verse number 1, he tells us that he is the Christ and the Messiah. In verse 1, he tells us he is the Son of God. Verse 3, he tells us he is the Lord. Verse 7, he tells us through John the Baptist that he is the mighty one who is coming. In verse 8, he tells us that he is the one who baptizes, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. In verse 10, we see that he is the Spirit-anointed King. Verse 11, he is the beloved Son of the Father. Verse 11, he is the one who pleases the Father. A little later in verse 22, he is the one who astonishes people with his teaching because he actually teaches with authority. In verse 24, you find that even the demons of hell confess that he is the Holy One of God. In verse 26 and 34, uh, we find that he's the one who casts out demons. In verses 31 through 34, he's the one who has the power to heal sickness. And in verse 42, he even cleanses the lepers. That's just in Mark number chapter 1. So make no mistake that the me and follow me, because it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, he is definitely qualified. He definitely has the right to demand that people follow him. But never forget, although the demand may seem tough and difficult, it is gracious that he would say, follow me to anyone. No matter the cost, no matter the requirements, the fact that he would simply say, follow me to sinners such as these four, sinners such as you and me, it is mind-boggling. But the great news of the kingdom of God is that Jesus graciously enlists sinners in his kingdom. But secondly, we see that Jesus powerfully equips service in his kingdom. Now look what he says. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Don't miss this. He is not just saying, follow me in your own power. Follow me in your 
your, your own energy. No, he is saying, follow me and I'll give you the ability and the power that you need to accomplish my purpose for you. You know, oftentimes you hear people say things like this. Well, I would get saved, but I just can't live it. Have you ever heard somebody say that? I would get saved, but I, I'm just afraid I won't be able to, 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 to stay saved. I'd get saved, or I'd, I'm just afraid that I'd mess up. My response to that is, oh, you will mess up. You mark it down. But, but too many people think that salvation is that God gives you a fresh start, and then he leaves you by yourself to continue the rest of your Christian life without him. That I'll, I'll put you on the track. And then I'll leave, and then it's up to you to finish the journey. That's not the way the Christian life is. The Christian life is God doing a work in you, and then God continuing doing that work in you until he brings you home to glory. That's what the Christian life is about. It's not just about God saving us. It's about God working in us and God making us what we could never become ourselves. And thus, this is a promise of his power to these disciples. I will make you. But what's he going to make them? Here he says he's going to make them fishers of men. Now, this gets down into the kingdom work. Jesus, we see, is advancing the kingdom through the call, through the gospel, one heart at a time. But the secret to kingdom work is the disciples whom he calls to himself then are responsible to take the same message out and to give it to other people who, through the gospel, through repentance and faith, are saved and they enter the kingdom, and then they go out doing the same thing. And so there's exponential growth in the kingdom of God as it goes forward from one sinner to the other. Um, one preacher has likened evangelism to this, that it is just one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. And that's what kingdom work is about. But notice the idea of fishers of men, becoming a fisher of men. Uh, some people look at this and they think that it's, Jesus is just using, <clears throat> using a play on what's going on. He sees these brothers, they're, they're fishermen, they're mending their nets, they've caught some fish, and Jesus tells them, okay, follow me, and you're no longer going to catch fish, now you're going to catch men. In one sense, that's exactly what he's saying. But there is a much deeper meaning to what he is saying to, his, to these disciples. Uh, whenever you read a fisherman in the Old Testament, and you read the illustration or the metaphor of someone fishing, there is always a connotation of judgment. It's always in the context of judgment. God is seen as a fisherman in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 16, 16. God says, behold, I'm going to send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. Verse 18 says, I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land. They have filled my inheritance with carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abominations. Fishing doesn't sound too pleasant in the Old Testament. God said, I'll send fishermen in, I'll draw them in, and I'm drawing them in for judgment. Amos 4.2 says, The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take away the meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. The idea is he's going to hook them on the, on the hook and draw them in for judgment. Well, Jesus 
plays on that. Because with the dawning of the kingdom was not only the promise of ruling and reigning under the reign of Christ, but also there is the promise of judgment. It is, it is a promise that sinners are going to stand before God in judgment. Do you remember in Matthew what John the Baptist said about Jesus coming? He's not only coming to baptize men with the Holy Spirit, but he's also coming to baptize them with what? With fire. With judgment, with the dawning of the kingdom is not only the grace and mercy and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but also at the same time, there is the promise of judgment, of standing before God. And just as the coming of Christ is a reminder of his grace, it's also a reminder of his judgment. And so what is he doing here? Well, it, this is the call to gather men and women in light of this coming judgment. Lane says in his commentary on Mark, he says, because Jesus has come, fishing becomes necessary. The idea is we fish because judgment is coming. And unlike in the Old Testament where fish draws people into judgment, now, thank God by his grace, we fish to save people from judgment. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men to come. We've been studying hell on Wednesday night. We've been looking at hell, being a place of torture, being a place that is timeless, being a place where when people go, they don't get out. It is eternal because mankind has sinned against an infinite God. And when you sin against an infinite being, the only penalty for that is an infinite penalty. And that penalty is paid for forever throughout eternity in a place called hell. We've looked at it. And one of the things that I pray it has done for, for all of us who've been here is that it has increased our burden for lost people. Knowing the terror of the Lord that there is indeed an eternal hell. And that real people go there. And that they're there forever. And there is no getting out. And there is no annihilation. And there is no pay your debt and you go on to heaven. That's not how it works. It is forever. Based on that, Paul says we persuade men to come. The only hope of anyone missing hell is that they find themselves hooked on the gospel and that they are drugged into safety, into the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom work is about fishing for men. Kingdom work is about plucking people from the fire and saving them through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because here's the glorious news. He has equipped the church. He has equipped me and he has equipped you with the same tool he had. What did he have? The gospel of God. That's what saves. And so Jesus powerfully equips service in his kingdom. But thirdly, Jesus rightly expects sacrifice in his kingdom. Now, the call of the kingdom demands a response, demands an immediate response. It demands uh, a response, an ultimate response, if you will. So what does the call of the kingdom demand? What does Jesus expect his followers to do when he says, follow me? Two things. He expects us to forsake all. Look what happens in verse 18. 
And immediately, there's one of Mark's favorite words, they, that's Peter and Andrew, left their nets and followed him. Look in verse 20. And immediately he called them, this is James and John, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. You see, the call of God superseded all things. And so when Jesus called them to follow him, they left. Well, they leave. They left their business, their boats and their net. They left their family. James and John left their father Zebedee sitting on the boat. They left their comforts. This is all they've known. Most of the time, they were fishermen because their father was a fisherman. This is the only life they've known. And so now, they're having to step outside of their comfort zone. And they're having to leave it. They even left luxury. Do you notice Andrew and John? What they left? It said, in the hired servants. Now, I don't know if they were slaves, but I do know this. Things are going pretty good when you have hired servants, and they're yours. I mean, they're having to leave a life of luxury, a life of comfort. Leave it all in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the thing about the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God demands absolute loyalty like this. Demands we forsake all to follow Jesus. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 10. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Most people aren't in the kingdom because they're holding on to something else they're not willing to walk away from. For some people, it's habits. For some people, it's a secret sin. For some people, it's unforgiveness that they will not let go of. And it's, it's, it's holding them back. Uh, John MacArthur told in a book of his once of a prostitute who had made an appointment at his office and came to talk to him about the gospel. She said she wanted to be saved. And MacArthur took her through the gospel. He shared the gospel with her about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. Told her if she would believe in that and repent of her sin, that the Lord would graciously save her no matter what her past sins had been. And she said she wanted to be saved. She wanted to trust Christ and she wanted to pray. So he prayed with her. And after they prayed, MacArthur did something very strange. He said, do you have a a little black book with all your contacts in it? She said, yeah. He said, do you have it on you? She said, I sure do. She pulled it out. And he said, can you give it to me? He said, I don't want, I'm not going to look at one name in it. I'm not going to bother it at all. But you and I are going to walk outside and we're going to burn it together. He said she got a puzzled look on her face. And she said, why burn this? He said, because you're a new creature now. You're a new person now. Your life's been made anew. And this is part of repentance. It's turning away from sin. She said, but oh, that book's worth a whole lot of money to me. And he said, either the book or Jesus. And he said, she looked at him and she said, you know, I probably don't want to be saved, do I? He said, apparently not. She took her book, put it in her purse, and walked and got up and walked out and left. Why? Because she was not willing to walk away. She was not willing to repent. And that's what repentance truly is. You see, Isaac Watts, and for some people it, it may seem as if this is, this is harsh of Jesus, but it's not. Isaac Watts summarizes it well in his old hymn when he said, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, 
love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If Jesus is who he said he is, then demanding us to forsake all is not too much. Because we don't just forsake all. Being a Christian is not about giving up. It's not about quitting certain things. Being a Christian is not about stopping your bad habits. That's not all. It's not just about forsaking all. There's a second aspect to it. Because when Jesus demands that we forsake all, he at the same time demands that we follow him. We follow him. You see, and when you truly follow Jesus, there's not anyone in Scripture that I've ever met who felt like they gave up too much to follow Jesus. Those who really know him. Do you know what? Everybody who really knows Jesus, we all feel like we got the good end of this deal. What Peter and James and John and Andrew do? Well, verse 18 says they followed him. Verse 20 says they followed him. They followed Jesus. Do you want to enter the kingdom of God? Do you want to be a part of this advancement as it goes forward? Well, then you need to understand that the kingdom of God supersedes all things. Supersedes our worldly comforts. You know, Jesus does something very strange in Luke 9. He has an encounter with three different people, and their encounters all surround the kingdom of God and entering the kingdom of God. And Jesus seems a little harsh, but he's painting a true portrait of us of what it takes to enter the kingdom. One man walks up to Jesus and he says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What is he saying? If you really want to follow me, then following me may take you to a place where you have no comfort, you have no roof, you have no food, you, you have nothing except me. Would that be enough? Another person comes up to Jesus and he says to Jesus, Jesus says to him, follow me. And this man looks at Jesus and he says, well, first let me go bury my dead father. Well, that seems like a pretty notable, pretty good reason to hold off on following the kingdom of God. Give me just a few days. As a matter of fact, give me just a few hours. In their day and time, when, you bur- when someone died in the morning, they buried them that evening. They died in the evening, they buried them before sunup. So he's talking about just a few hours, of delaying just a few hours. Let me go bury my father. What's Jesus say to him? Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What is he saying? He is saying that the kingdom of God is so vital, so valuable, so important that it even supersedes our familial relationships. That if being a child of God causes our relationships with close people to be severed, we should value the kingdom more than temporal, earthly relationships. And then another one came to Jesus, and he said, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere, but but let me first go and tell my family members goodbye. Well, Jesus saw right into his heart and knew exactly what was going on there. And Jesus said to him, no, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back and is worthy of the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? He's saying you cannot half-heartedly follow me into the kingdom. There's no room for half-hazard devotion in the kingdom of God. 
Because what's he deserve? What's he demand? My soul, my life, my all. So I ask you today, you've heard the gospel. That God sent his son to this earth to die in the place of sinners, bearing his wrath in their place. He was buried and he was raised again the third day. And in order to be saved, you must believe that message and repent of your sins. That's the gospel. You've heard that. But will you believe it today? Will you follow the Lord Jesus Christ today? Or are you clinging to your boat, clinging to your net? Clinging to Zebedee, clinging to your hired servants. What are you clinging to? Maybe you say, well, just give me a little bit of time. No, two times, both times. The Bible says immediately, immediately they forsook all and followed him. Scripture always speaks of now being the acceptable time. Today being the day of salvation. This moment is all you've got. And so there is an imperative for you to follow Jesus and you to follow Jesus now. My prayer this morning is that the kingdom of God will continue to advance in this sin-cursed dark world one heart at a time as sinners repent of their sin, believe the gospel, and trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they leave here following Jesus. Let's pray. Father.